Okay, then we will continue now with the analysis of the Chula Vedala Sutta. And now we've been discussing the attainment of the cessation of perception and feeling. This is the Sanya Vedaita Nirota. Last time we dealt with paragraph 17 in the Sutta. Now we come to paragraph 18. And the Upasaka Visaka asks Damadina, how does the emergence from the attainment of cessation of perception and feeling come about? That is, how does one emerge or come out from this attainment of cessation? And now, the, in a sense, the problem is that when the bhikkhu, the meditator, goes into the attainment of cessation, then there is no consciousness. And so there's no mind to make the decision, let me come out at such and such a time. So this is something of a puzzle, because it would seem that if, <laughs> if there were no other way to come out, then if one got into the attainment of cessation, one could never come out of it, because there would be <laughs> no mind to make the decision to come out. But Dhammadina gives the explanation. She says that when a bhikkhu is emerging from the attainment of cessation, then it does not occur to him, I shall emerge from the attainment of cessation, or I am emerging from it, or I have emerged from the attainment of cessation of perception and feeling. But rather, his mind has previously been developed in such a way that it leads him to that state. That is one of the, I think, one of the prerequisites for entering the attainment of cessation is that one has to make the determination beforehand that one will remain in that state for a particular duration of time. If one doesn't make that, usually one will make the determination, I will stay in the attainment of cessation maybe five minutes, one hour. It can even be a full day and up to a maximum of seven days. And so one makes that determination and then that determination sort of sinks into the stream of consciousness and somehow even when the stream of consciousness is cut off in the attainment of cessation but because one has made that determination then when the predetermined period of time elapses 
then automatically one emerges from that attainment. And so the point of the answer is that one emerges because one has made that predetermination that is called here developing the mind previously in such a way that it leads one out of that state. Okay, now question 9 or paragraph 19. The Saka asks, when a bhikkhu is emerging from the attainment of cessation, which states arise first in him? The bodily formation, the verbal formation, or the mental formation? And Dhammadina replies, when the bhikkhu is emerging from the attainment of cessation, first the mental formation arises, then the bodily formation, then the verbal formation. Now why do these three formations arise in this particular order? Why is it that the mental formation comes first, then the verbal formation, I'm sorry, then the bodily formation, then the verbal formation? Okay, we have on the board, we have the identification of these three types of formation. Okay, the mental formation is perception and feeling. The verbal formation, or the bodily formation, is in and out breathing. And the verbal formation is applied and sustained thought, vitaka and vichara. According to the explanation and the commentary here, this is a very subtle point, so I can't answer based on either my own experience or by asking other people what happens when they emerge from the attainment of cessation. <laughs> I think the commentary maybe is based on some very old texts that go back to very early period. When the yogi comes out of the attainment of cessation, what happens first is that the mind goes into the fruition attainment, what's called the palasamapati, just for a short period. So if it is an arahant coming out of the attainment of cessation, then the first mind, state of mind that comes up, the first citta will be what's called the arahata palasamapati. That's the attainment of the fruit of arahatship. It's a special type of meditative state that the arahant can reach, in which just very briefly 
he will experience Nibbana directly. <coughs> then after that fruition consciousness has passed, then the mind goes into what they call the bhavanga. That's the stream of consciousness. And after coming out from that stream of consciousness, then the arhant will review his experience. He'll come back to the normal level of consciousness and then he'll review that experience of, of cessation. If it's a non-returner, an anagami who has gone into cessation, <coughs> then when he comes out, the first consciousness that will arise is called anagami palachita. That's the experience of the fruit of non-returning. It's also a very exalted state of consciousness in which just for that moment, a few moments, he directly experiences Nibbana. Then also for the Anagami, after the fruit of non-return, then he'll go into the bhavanga, the stream of subconsciousness, just for a few moments. Then he'll come out and review that experience. Okay, now when he comes out and goes into the fruition consciousness, that experience of the fruit of either arhatship or non-returning, then in that consciousness there will be perception and feeling. And perception and feeling, that is the mental formation. And so the mental formation arises first. In the fruition consciousness, for one coming out of cessation, there is no breathing is taking place yet, and no thinking. But there is perception and there is feeling. And so the mental formation arises first. Then when the mind leaves the fruition consciousness and goes into the bhavanga, then the breathing, in and out breathing, resumes. And so, since he's, excuse me, <coughs> since he's breathing in and out, the bodily formation, in and out breathing, is revived, starts again. And then, when the mind comes out from the vanga, 
and goes to the reviewing consciousness which is like the ordinary consciousness so a very refined state of ordinary consciousness then there will be thinking and examining and so we say applied thought and sustained thought have come back again Okay, now Visaka asks, paragraph 20, when a bhikkhu has emerged from the attainment of the cessation of perception and feeling, how many kinds of contact touch him? Or what kind of contact takes place? <coughs> and she replies, when a bhikkhu has emerged from the attainment of cessation of perception and feeling, three kinds of contact touch him or actually we say one out of these three kinds of contact <coughs> voidness contact signless contact or desireless contact <coughs> now what are these three types of contact again this is very abstruse <laughs> these are three these three terms voidness or sunyata, sunyata the signless animitta and the desireless or wishless apanihita these are three different aspects <coughs> of nibbana Nibbana is called voidness because it is devoid of any kind of self or substance. It's called signless because it doesn't have any of the marks of conditioned phenomena. And it's called wishless or desireless because there's no desire or craving in Nibbana. And now the state of mind which experiences Nibbana is described according to the aspect of Nibbana that one is experiencing. <coughs> if that mind is experiencing Nibbana in the aspect of voidness, then it is called voidness contact. If one is experiencing Nibbana in the aspect of signlessness, it's called signless contact. If it's experiencing Nibbana in the aspect of desirelessness, it's called desireless contact. And Nibbana is actually one reality, but it has these three different aspects because different meditators arrive at the realization of Nibbana through different <coughs> types of insight. All the meditators have to do 
the three contemplations of impermanence, suffering, and anatta, egolessness. <clears throat> but different individuals incline to different approaches in the meditation that will lead to Nibbana. Some meditators prefer to contemplate impermanence. And it's not enough just to contemplate impermanence alone, one has to do anicca, dukkha, anatta. But the meditator, even though he's contemplating all three, but the mind will lean to impermanence. It sort of prefers to contemplate impermanence. And when that meditator reaches the realization of Nibbana, then the mind will focus on Nibbana in the aspect of signlessness. Because Nibbana is devoid of any sign of impermanent formation. Another meditator, while practicing all three contemplations, prefers to focus upon Nibbana, I'm sorry, prefers to focus upon the characteristic of dukkha, of suffering. And when that meditator makes the breakthrough to the realization of Nibbana, then his mind will focus on Nibbana as the desireless or the wishless. Because when one is contemplating suffering, then tanha, craving, is getting reduced, reduced, reduced. And so when the breakthrough takes place, then one realizes Nibbana in the aspect of desirelessness. And the meditator whose mind gravitates to the characteristic of anatta, egolessness, will realize Nibbana in its aspect of sunyata, voidness or emptiness. Okay, then the next question that Visaka asks, when a bhikkhu has emerged from the attainment of the cessation of perception and feeling, to what does his mind incline? To what does it lean? To what does it tend? And then Dhammadina replies, when he emerges from the attainment of cessation, then his mind inclines to seclusion, leans to seclusion, tends to seclusion. This is Viveka, Viveka, Viveka Ninang, Vineka Ponikam, Ponang, Viveka Pabaran. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>
and the commentator explains that seclusion here should be understood as Nibbana. So in other words, when he comes out of the attainment of cessation, then the mind doesn't want to become involved in worldly activities and busy activities, but the mind leans back to this experience of Nibbana. Okay, and that is the discussion of the attainment of cessation. It's maybe a very abstruse part of this discussion, very remote from <laughs> our problems of day-to-day -day existence, but I think it's good that we've covered this rather abstract subject. If there are any questions at this point on any of the discussion on Nirodha Samapati, and maybe we should ask them now. Excuse me. In Nirodha, the breathing has stopped completely. The breathing has stopped even with the entry into the fourth jhana. And in all the, fo the formless attainments, the arupa attainments, there's no breathing. The body continues and the body is alive, but the mental process has been cut off. I don't think that science quite has had the opportunity to <laughs> investigate subjects in the state and to be able to determine what is happening. But I think, you know, there are these, what do they call these devices, EEG is it? Electroencelograph. No, no, the ECG is the heart. EEG is the measures the brain waves. EEG, electroencelograph. If they were to find a yogi going into Nirodha Samapati and they were to put this E, uh, this, what do they call this? The, they put these contacts, wires on different points of the skull to measure the brain activity. And if they were to put that on and then to put the machine on, when he's entering the various jhanas, there would be a very I think it would be a very smooth graph, almost no fluctuations in the jhanas, and then maybe <laughs> the needle would get subtler and finer, the line finer and finer as he goes into each higher attainment. Then when he enters into Nirodha Samapati, I think the machine would just come to a stop. <laughs> And then for seven days he's sitting in the Rhoda Samapati. Somehow the life main is maintained. I don't know how that is. <laughs>
is possible for the brain to remain undamaged or carry prolonged periods and Normally, that would be about two to three minutes. Two to three weeks? Normally, two to three minutes. Two to three minutes. The brain is denied oxygen, the brain dies. But say under conditions of extreme cold, near freezing, there have been instances where people, for instance, have almost drowned, been underwater without breathing for 20 minutes or more. Okay, thank you. Do you think that the sequence described with the entry and the access of cessation would be the same with the death consciousness and rebirth consciousness? That like uh, thought stops first and breath, and then there's only perception, then there's the death moment, and the first thing of rebirth consciousness would be the contact, then the breath comes, and then only the thought process starts? Is there anything in the Sutrasana that gives you kind of similar? Of course, I mean, for us in the Euro, so far away, so that's more death than something more problem with the experience than life. Let me just think about that for a minute. I believe that in most, let's say, the death of a person. A normal death, not the death of somebody who is going out from the fourth jhana or higher. Um, in that case, I would say applied and sustained thought and perception and feeling stop simultaneously with the last state of consciousness. And the breathing, I would say also stops with that last state of consciousness. This is from like the Abhidhamic way of analysis. Then in the rebirth process, I think the breathing only starts actually after the infant emerges from the womb. In the womb there's, to my knowledge, that there isn't in and out breathing. Is that correct or am I wrong? Taking up oxygen from the mother but then if you... But the actual inhalation and exhalation is not taking place. So I would say then in the prenatal period, then perception and feeling, and I think in the rebirth consciousness, even applied and sustained thought will be present. The very first moment when it touches that comma object from the last life that has been determined this this life is that there is Vitaka and Vichara. I think so. No, I think Vitaka and Vichara will be present. Yeah, and yeah, I think in those types of rebirth consciousness there are, in all the types of rebirth consciousness, Vitaka and Vichara. But I would have to look that up again. Okay. Was there another question? Okay, then we'll go on to the, the next section in the sutta. This is a discussion of feeling. Okay, first question, this is quite standard. How many kinds of feeling are there? Three kinds of feeling, pleasant, painful, and neutral feeling. Neither painful nor pleasant. 
Okay, what is pleasant feeling? What is painful feeling? What is neither painful nor pleasant feeling? Okay, then Dhammadina answers, whatever is felt bodily or mentally as pleasant and soothing or comfortable, that is pleasant feeling. And so, <clears throat> two types of pleasant feeling, bodily and mental. Uh, you say two types of pleasant feeling, bodily pleasant feeling, and mental pleasant feeling. Whatever one feels through the body that is pleasant is a pleasant feeling, and whatever one feels with the mind that is pleasant is a pleasant feeling. Sometimes the texts make a fivefold distinction of feeling in which they divide feeling into <coughs> So they distinguish bodily pleasure is just called pleasure but mental pleasure is called somanasa which means joy or happiness. Then there's two types of painful feeling, bodily pain, which is just called pain, and mental painful feeling, which we will call, which is called dominasa, sadness, grief, displeasure. And then both bodily and mental neutral feeling together are just called equanimous feelings. But that we should distinguish this type of equanimity from the, what we might call spiritual equanimity. You know, not being shaken by pleasure and pain, praise and blame. That's a different quality altogether. This feeling is called upeka vedana. It just means any feeling that's not pleasant, not painful. Sometimes we could call it indifferent feeling. Okay, so anyway, this part is just quite standard, routine doctrine. But now in the next paragraph, there's somewhat quite interesting distinctions are made. I think they're original to the sutta. The Upasaka says, what, in regard to pleasant feeling, what is pleasant and what is painful? In regard to painful feeling, what is painful and what is pleasant? And in regard to neutral feeling, what is pleasant and what is painful? 
Now this seems very puzzling. If there's pleasant feeling, one thinks it's pleasant. So how can there be something painful in pleasant feeling? If you cross out the, hold out the answer, don't look at the answer. What can be painful about pleasant feeling? The change, it changes. So when the pleasant feeling disappears, then it becomes, then there's pain because one is sorrow, sor one is sorry for the disappearance of the pleasant feeling. And then we take painful feeling. What can be pleasant about painful feeling? When painful feeling changes, then one is glad that the pain is over. And so the painful feeling becomes pleasant when it changes. It's not that, <laughs> not that the pleasant feeling itself becomes painful, or that the painful feeling itself becomes pleasant because each feeling has its own character. But when the pleasant feeling is lasting, then we're happy and so we say that we're experiencing pleasure. And if the pleasant feeling ceases, then we become upset and so we say that because the pain, the pleasant feeling Okay, so just the reverse is the case with the painful feeling. While it's lasting, then we are in pain. But when the painful feeling stops, then we feel relief, and so we say, that's pleasure, that's pleasant. Okay, then the neutral feeling. Neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Now here, that, that's a sort of subtle distinction. And Dhammadina answers that the neutral feeling is pleasant when there is knowledge of it, when there is awareness of it, and painful when there is no knowledge of it, when one is unaware of it. How would one understand that? How should one understand this? Any any ideas? This one is too difficult to make even a guess. <laughs> anyway, then I'll just have to make a guess myself. <laughs> I'd say that the neutral feeling doesn't actually change its character and become pleasant when known or and painful when it's unknown but rather the state of knowing when one is contemplating neutral feeling when one is in the act of contemplating it and being aware that there's just neutral feeling then that state of knowledge is a positive state a state of growth and of clear consciousness 
and so it contributes to happiness, to pleasure. But when one is unaware of neutral feeling, just in a state of dullness and incomprehension regarding it, that state of ignorance or unawareness contributes to attachment, to boredom with the neutral feeling, and so it's a basis of pain. Okay, now, does that seem reasonable, that explanation? Okay, now, Visaka is going to make some connection between certain defilements, which are called in the Pali text, anusya, which means latent tendencies, underlying tendencies, dormant tendencies, a connection between these and the feelings themselves. And the Buddhist texts speak about three types of latent tendencies. Sometimes they speak of seven, but other times more simply of three. There's the latent tendency to lust or craving, raganusya, the latent tendency towards aversion, anger, irritation, and the latent tendency to ignorance, unawareness, unknowing. And so uh, Visaka asks, which of these underlying tendencies underlies pleasant feeling? In other words, what latent tendency or underlying tendency arises and becomes active in regard to pleasant feeling? And which of these underlying tendencies underlies painful feeling? And which tendency underlies neutral feeling? Neither painful nor pleasant feeling. And when one experiences a pleasant feeling, what is the mind's response to that pleasant feeling? What happens? How does one react? when one experiences pleasure? What is the tendency or inclination of the mind? Craving. Craving, or what would else would, would one say? Or there comes, especially attachment to a clinging. One wants, one hold, wants to hold to that pleasant feeling and keep it lasting, and even permanent. And so this attachment to the pleasant feeling, this desire for the pleasure to last, that is, we could say that that is the work of the raganusaya, that underlying tendency to desire or attachment or lust. 
when one experiences the painful feeling, then how does the mind respond? Aversion, or what other word would be? What else? What? Dislike. Dislike. Irritation. Annoyance. Displeasure. Okay, all of these are different aspects of this underlying tendency to aversion. Okay, now when this neutral feeling, neither pleasant feeling or painful feeling is occurring. This feeling is subtler than the other two types of feeling. Generally, when one is in a state of pleasure, one knows it. Not with the kind of awareness of sati, of mindfulness, but one is definitely aware that one is pleased happy, satisfied, <coughs> joyful. And when one is in a state of pain, displeasure, sorrow, grief, unhappiness, annoyance, one is aware of it. But when the mind is in the state which is neither pleasant nor painful, it's just like a empty space or like just a blank in the stream of consciousness. One is not especially aware of it. And yet, according to the Buddha's method of mind training, one also has to be aware of this neutral feeling. Since generally it's when the mind is in this neutral state that it tends to become <laughs> bored. <laughs> and when it gets bored, then it seeks pleasure, or something to stimulate and excite the mind or else it sinks into depression and becomes sad. And so the general tendency of the mind in regard to the neutral feeling is unawareness or ignorance. So that's how these three underlying tendencies tend to attach themselves to these three different types of feeling. Maybe I will stop at this point because I think they're starting to get the, everything ready for the Peyrehera here and some people have to go home that way and so I don't want them to get caught in the crowd. Okay, so we'll stop now. In the Abhidhamma, the neutral feeling is said to be it's not a kayika vedana. It's not a bodily, it's not the feeling that arises from bodily contact. 
but it seems that there are types of neutral feeling that arise not actually from the direct bodily contact but from bodily experience and I think that would be referred to here in the sutta as bodily neutral feeling maybe the types of feeling that arise in the states of consciousness subsequent to that immediate kaya vinyana do you understand that? the distinction? okay the kaya within the abhidhamma system of the stream of consciousness the kaya vinyana has to be either pleasant feeling or painful feeling there's no neutral feeling that arises in kaya vinyana but in the states of consciousness that come in that cognitive series after the kaya vinyana but still arising through the body door there can be neutral equanimous states of consciousness and so within the sutta system one could say that those are bodily neutral feelings also one finds in other passages in the suttas where the Buddha does, gives the analysis in terms of the six sense bases and then showing how feeling arises from the six sense bases <clears throat> he would speak of having seen a form with the eye <clears throat> or independence upon the eye and forms visual consciousness arises the meeting of the three is contact conditioned by that contact one experiences feeling either pleasant, painful, or neither painful nor pleasant feeling and so with all the other five physical sense organs but according to the Abhidhamma system in the visual consciousness and so on there's no pleasant and painful feeling and in the bodily consciousness there's no neutral feeling but in the sutta system they're not making such these fine distinctions of individual moments of consciousness but just speaking in terms of you know, to say the experience that as we can reflect upon it 